This is the EC Podcast, by and for emerging conservation professionals. Last week on the podcast, we talked about writing a master's thesis, and this week we're continuing with part two, featuring Terry Costello, Paul Van Lahr, Rosemi Copens, and myself, Liz Bear. Yeah, we were kind of in similar situations, I guess, Liz, because I worked with someone writing at the same time, so it was kind of nice because while she was working, I'd be working, and if you were being lazy while the other person was working, you're a bit like hard on yourself. So, but that works even with like, now I live uh, with my boyfriend who works from home and while he's working, that's when I do my writing and everything because it's not, cause you are, you're in it together, which is nice. Well, kind of along the same lines, how much contact did you have with your thesis supervisor? Was that somebody that you could check in with regularly? For me, quite, yeah. My, my, I think my contact with my fees supervisor is very good, but we're also a bit the same in that when we talk, we get overly excited and come up with more instead of less. Uh, so as those conversations would be very nice, I'd walk away and just be like, oh, wait, so I have to 15 more chapters to write. Yeah. So it's maybe good if you have a supervisor like that to at least have someone else Maybe a professor that's not doing anything with your thesis at all, but at least they can like calm you down and help you maybe strip off the less important stuff. I had almost the exact same way. My my supervisor and I were very close uh, during the process, and like I would even be um, feel okay with calling her or texting her if I just had a random question or something. Um, quick, but yeah, I tried to do a lot of set up, sit down Zoom meetings when it was a big discussion to have, but we oftentimes got a bit too excited and was talking about like, oh, and you can explore this, but oh, maybe that's for future research. And uh, <laughs> I did, I did, I was thinking about this. Um, I think what happened was that every chapter I wrote besides introduction and conclusion, she did also read before submission um, at some point and give me feedback. So she really was on top of everything, like knew exactly what I was writing, um, was very, yeah, knew exactly what was going on. So that was really nice. Um, but also I will say, so we, when you get your results, there's a just UVA Masters of Humanity thesis assessment form that they use. And one of the criteria is independence uh which i did fine with even though i was constantly talking to her because i did do a lot of my own research and went to certain avenues myself but it is something to keep in mind that they do look at your your overall process and how well you work by yourself on these sort of things so yeah it's a really nice to have a balance of being able to ask your professor questions and always having an open dialogue but then not relying on them too much as like, what should I do now? Help me. But <laughs> yeah, I had a slightly different experience. My uh, supervisor was supervising a few other theses. So I got support. We did Zoom meetings and we, I would send them my uh, writing and get some feedback back and forth, but it wasn't 
as often of a check-in process as maybe I personally would have benefited from. So I had to find support in other places. Um, and actually I really relied a lot on my dad. He would meet with me once a week during like the real thick of it, of the writing and uh, go over sections that I was really struggling with, give me advice or honestly, just like having him there as a person to talk with and bounce ideas off of was really, really useful. Yeah, maybe that's then it's just maybe yeah, be realistic who your supervisor is, right? I feel sometimes there's a trade off between like availability on the one hand, or a very much an expert in their field, very knowledgeable, but that also often means they don't really have that much time. Um, so if you have one of those, yeah, then maybe you need to find someone around, like your dad or another professor, maybe find a second supervisor that can, can be more of the, the structured one uh, in the process. Because without that, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, eh? Yeah. Yeah, and I really didn't know how to structure a thesis before writing this so i kind of had to teach myself in a lot of ways um looking at other theses is really helpful for that i know that um a person i was working closely with during this process jesse she really like would go into previous years what their theses looked like and base her structure off of what she liked from various other theses which was very smart i did not do enough of that and i probably would have benefited from it if i had yeah i did that i um it's nice because most of the past theses are on the uh library website so um you can look up topics that you know are closer to yours uh so i was looking at glass and ceramics theses to look at there um specifically what they did but also the ones that did very well so i know um the year before us sorry two years before us it, there was a thesis that won um the right museum prize that was actually a technical art history student but i did look at that one just to see the structure of a award-winning thesis um yeah i think that's a really good advice was to go through <laughs> And maybe not read them all, but especially the headers and subheaders are really nice to look at. This is a great way to transition into talking about the prize. So in our program, there is a prize for the best thesis, uh, and it's all of the different specialties are eligible. And we actually have the winner of this year's prize on the podcast today, one Miss Terry. <laughs> so can you talk us through a little bit about what you're looking for in the winning thesis. Sure. And also, can I just ask Paul, how do you say the It's Gerrit Michelin. I always say the name. Michelin Gerritsen. Yeah, okay, that's, yeah, Michelin Gerritsen, um, Rijksmuseum Award. I, it's so sad that I cannot pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think there's some criteria because every year there's three nom nominees. So to be considered for a nomination, you have to score, I believe an 8.5 or above as your um, final grade. And I know there was some um, more than three who got that in our year. Uh, and then there's, I think that, yeah, that automatically puts you in the running, they narrow it down 
to three nominees. Um, there's a board of three readers, um, one from the Reg Cesam, one from UVA, and one from the RCE. And uh, yeah, for our year, there was uh, a student from Contemporary Art who did her thesis on Erica Lowe on uh, biological art and the challenges preserving living art. Uh, Jesse Carter from Paintings, who also worked with the Night Watch and uh, Small in her thesis, and then mine from Glass and Ceramics, where it was on these cracking phenomenon in glass horns. And uh, at the award ceremony, they talked about why my thesis was selected, and I think what they said put mine above the other two, which they were very good pieces as well, was um, one, that it, the setup of the research and the overall um, organization of it. So how I went from having hypotheses, testing those out, rejecting it if it, you know, if the analysis said so, and then finding actually I did what I was able to conclusively say what was causing this cracking to happen. Um, I think also they said that one thing they look at is how applicable and helpful to the field of conservation the thesis is. So one thing that I did for my thesis was I used some uh, somewhat newer techniques of analysis besides just instrumental. So like we talked about, I did reconstructions with a glass blower. I also did a lot. I had a whole chapter on fractography, which is uh, in material science when you look at the cracking network and do a whole analysis based on the cracks themselves. And for that, I had to get in contact with a glass scientist from America and do all that myself. And it's kind of a newer thing in glass conservation. So to answer your question, I think those are the reasons why it won the award. Yeah. We're very, very proud of you. Thank you. Um, Paul, when you were writing your thesis, you've already talked about this a bit, but you were juggling some other research projects for the Rijksmuseum at the same time. So I think that you probably had one of the biggest workloads overall. How did you handle that? And why did you choose to do that? <laughs> Still don't have an answer to the second one. I feel everyone in my in my immediate surroundings asking me this question, like why, why um, to this day? Well, yeah, I don't know. I feel as a student, it's very hard sometimes to say no, especially I feel at the Rijksmuseum, there are a lot of cool opportunities that could come your way. Um, so the small thing started way before, I think at the end of my first year, I just joined the, the team of the Rijks under one of my professors. And that just, it started as a fieldwork thing, but the fieldwork itself was only one, one credits worth of a course, one course worth of credit. Um, but it just lasted until the end of my uh, studies. But that in the end landed me a job. Um, so I think in the end, it might have been worth it. Um, but yeah, I definitely, in combination with lockdown, had a lot of bad mental health problems, I think. But then uh, one of my friends just said, I think on this writing weekend over a glass of wine, was like, why don't you just share this with your professor? I mean, she's your supervisor, both in the small thing and the Vermeer project. So I sent her tipsy, I might add, a very long heartfelt email and then the morning after she said just let's call and she was you know sometimes you think like you get into this round of like oh nothing works everything i write sucks and then she just said 
stop. You, you're allowed to work an hour a day and then the rest of it go outside and walk. And then actually for two weeks, I just worked an hour a day and that, that bumped me back up. So sometimes, yeah, don't feel bad reaching out. I feel, I feel in our field, most of the people are actually genuinely very nice. Um, so if you're, surely there are some that you can't always have the best people, but most of them are very nice. So I feel opening up there. Um, and once I did that, uh, I feel that that changed the process a lot. Um, that changed the process a lot. And also, yeah, no, actually just reaching out. That's the main tip. I had a very different experience uh, from Terry, actually the polar opposite. I did not pass my thesis the first time and I had to resit it. Uh, and that was very, uh, that felt awful. Obviously, I received a five on my writing and I had to rally fairly quickly in order to meet the reset deadline. Um, I gave myself a day or two to just kind of feel terrible. But then having the chance to look at my thesis and see what the feedback was, the feedback was very reasonable. And it was also all things that I already knew I was lacking. So it didn't have anything to do with my writing or my actual research. It was all down to the structure and formatting. So I needed to write more in my introduction that was laying out how I was going to go through step A, B, C in the thesis. I hadn't written anything like that. My conclusion needed some sprucing up uh, as well as my discussion. And then in terms of formatting, I needed to change some stuff in my appendix, add a few tables, change how my photos looked. But it overall was not as much work as I thought it would be like I thought oh I failed this is awful I need to rewrite the whole thing it was very minor things that I had to do that made my thesis so much better I ended up getting a seven and I'm really really happy with how it looks now and I feel like it's something I can be genuinely proud of instead of just something that I did yeah that's very interesting yeah the thing is, it's, it is something, you know, it's a requirement to graduate writing these theses, but it's also one of, for me, my first introduction to independent research and putting myself, you know, out into the network of conservators. And it it is, you know, it's probably good to think of it as this is something I created and that will be open to the world and it's going to contribute to the field somehow. And that's what's nice is that it's not just another assignment that you get graded and put in your folder on your computer, it, it helps conservation as a whole. So that's really good. Yeah. yeah and also maybe expectation management. I maybe had something comparable to Liz. I just didn't, well, no, it was, it wasn't, it was a, a, an agreement with the teacher, but I think the original deadline is like June something or maybe earlier. I don't know, like mid June. If I would have, uh, there, well, there was nothing to hand in yet for me, which was partly because of all this museums lockdown and but also because of the other research project. And then we shifted it to the mid of July. And then by the end of June, we said, well, no, still not gonna happen. So I only ended up handing in my thesis at the end of the, the last possible day, the 31st of August. Um, 
which maybe in terms of feeling is a bit the same what you might have experienced this as well for a long time in your head you have like it's going to end there and then it doesn't and then yeah you need a couple of days to like recuperate yeah i mean you were working straight through till the 31st i handed in my my thesis and then i had a month where they were reading it where i thought i'm done it's over oh. and then you got to get back into it yeah that's hard as well yeah after a month to come back that's less but than ideal of course they made it easier to be objective about what i needed mm-hmm. to do and what was lacking so that was good Oh, about coming back to your thesis. Actually, I have a situation recently where I had a manuscript accepted, an abstract and manuscript is accepted for a conference, um, the 2022 uh, ICOM CC Glass and Ceramics Working Group. And it Congratulations. Was, uh, thank you. Yeah. So that is the article's written now, but I, I had to. Um, I got, I wrote my abstract actually while I, before I even handed in my thesis, if I'm remembering correctly. So, um, I then got the abstract accepted and then, uh, I had to write the article and the article is about the analyses that, that I did for my thesis that were the more innovative ones. And I had to get back into my thesis, uh, the last couple of months and remember what I did and get really yeah it's really hard sometimes to get back into it but then you realize like i was saying how oh wait i did a lot of research i really contributed this is actually very solid stuff that i did um so it's nice because it's yeah it's always there for maybe not publishing on your thesis but to give motivation for future research because these are all diagnostic and investigations but then once you know what's going on, how do you treat it? You know, what other things could be happening if you weren't able to find, because there's some people who I think a lot of the times there's a, no, I couldn't actually pinpoint exactly what was going on. And that's the whole saying, no answer is an answer, but that then maybe that is some research you can do later on is to try to further pinpoint what is happening. So it's nice because yeah, it does lead into future things for yourself and your research, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, part of APP one is that you have to write an article based on your thesis. It doesn't need to be the same topic as your thesis. It can just be on a section. So Terry said that you wrote about the um, analytical methods that you utilized. I wrote about um, the ground reconstruction that I did, didn't even focus on the other two thirds of my thesis really. That's not something that you need to think about while you're writing your thesis, by the way. That's something that you're going to reflect on once it's done. Yeah, no, kind of a soothing thing that I, I also had that Terry just pointed out. It's like, if you re- reread your thesis, or that you also had after a month, sometimes if you reread, because at the end, you can't reflect objectively anymore. That's what I had. It was just writing, writing, and you're like, I don't know if this is any good. I'm handing it in. Could be a four, could be a nine, anything in between. And then if a couple months after you read it back and then indeed you're like, oh, wait, actually, this is quite some, you know, some fun and decent stuff. Um, so it probably isn't half as bad as you as you make it in your head while writing. Uh, that leads well into the last thing I want to do, which is uh, what's the best piece of advice that you got while writing your thesis or about writing your thesis? 
mine was very practical. Uh, and maybe I should have mentioned it earlier, but I remember when I first started during the master's two, I was talking to a student two years above us, uh, and she gave a very practical bit of advice, but I would want to pass it on is to have an Excel file with uh, for every literature or article that you read, you put in in this Excel file, the full bibliography entry, the first footnote uh, that would happen, and then the footnote shorthand. And having this file saved my butt at the end when I was going through final editing, because then when I was writing, I would just put a little shorthand, like the author's name or something, and page number in the footnote. And then at the end, I could just go through and copy and paste the, the actual footnote that's needed. Um, so thanks, Loretta from Textiles for that advice. It was very helpful. Uh, that sounds great. Um, uh, I did, I, yeah, go ahead, Paul. No, you go ahead. Okay, I'll go. Uh, I did an interview early on in my thesis writing process with somebody who had written a paper that I wanted to uh, reference. And she was also in the program. And the advice that she gave me essentially was that you're not going to care about this in a few years. I mean, Terry, you probably care about yours. <laughs> but in general, don't put too much pressure on yourself while you're writing it because it's such an undertaking and you're never going to write anything like this again. This is not going to be the norm in terms of your writing experiences. On that note, it's also, yeah, it's not the norm. And it's actually, it's really nice because it's a time to kind of explore and do really in-depth investigation because in practice, you know, unless you go into research, if you're doing work as a conservator, you don't always get these opportunities to do really investigative research. So yeah, it's kind of a, like you said, once off in either, that's a good thing because you don't want to do it again, or it's nice because you have it to remember as like, ah, oh, I remember I got to do all that research. It was great. Yeah. Paul, what did somebody tell you? Um, yeah, I have the thesis fridge already. I, I'd say pick, you know, I think your, your supervisor might nudge you a direction that can be very good or give you a topic, but in the end, yes, yeah, seek out that little part of it that just makes you very excited and interests you so much that you want to bore all the people around you. Um, because I feel that little bit will keep you interested until the end, right? Even if it's only a subsection of your thesis, just one thing that you can go back to where you're like, oh, there's one specific analytical technique, there's one specific historical question, or this one specific characteristic of the object really wows me. Um, I think that's an important one, yeah. So I'm still at the beginning, so I don't really have much advice on writing, but for the choice of my uh, uh, thesis subject, um, I got the advice to talk to experienced conservators and other specialists in the field. Um, and it really helped because uh, at the beginning, I really felt out of my league, um, choosing a subject that uh, that is relevant for the field. <laughs> Um, so I got the advice to talk to people who know more than I do, basically, and that really helped me. I think that's good advice at any point as well. If, if you're feeling unsure, there are plenty of people that you can reach out to. Yeah, oh, yeah. this is a very good one. Yeah. 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I had such nice responses most of the time, I think always from everyone I reached out to, whether it be like, yeah, just art historians or other conservators. And I always got like really, you know, interested responses and really nice. And I remember someone, yeah, some conservator uh, at a museum, like went into storage and pulled out their objects and sent me photos from their phone of their objects. And yeah. And yeah, that's maybe the best tip indeed. Just reach out. If you even if you if you find someone at the Metropolitan who does something related, just email. Mm-hmm. Just don't ever feel bad because researchers are all massive nerds. They love they there's nothing they love more than sharing what, what they've researched. It's I their actually, dream, you know. So actually with the Met, I didn't even have the person's email. I just emailed info at Metropolitan Museum or whatever that email is. I go, hi, I'm so sorry. Can you connect me to a conservator? I have these questions about these specific objects and I listed the Ascension number. And then I actually got a response from, like they forwarded it on. So yeah, you know, I feel like this field, everyone's just so nice. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That's why I love conservation. It's such a right. really close-knit community. To learn more about emerging conservation professionals, please follow us on Instagram at ecpodcast and email any questions to ecpodcastxxx at gmail.com. This podcast is edited by Liz A. Bear. Our theme song is by Manet van Feldhausen and Paul van Laar. Our logo is designed by Adler Papiernik. If you liked this episode, please leave a review and subscribe.